Welcome to Jepper Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Datta. What you're about to listen to is a live session from ZJLF at the British Library 2019, and it is called Amritsar and the Patient Assassin. Anita Anand and Kim A. Wagner in conversation with Navtej Sarna. <laughs> everybody and uh, welcome to this session. I think this has been the centenary year of uh, Jallianwala Bagh and enough has been written about it for most audiences to know what actually happened and the, the heart of the matter. So I won't go too much detail into the facts, but for those who may not know, very sh- in very brief terms, a uh, hundred years ago on the Harvest Festival Day of Baisakhi, April 13th, a crowd of uh, varying figures, but probably around 15 to 20,000, gathered in an enclosed space of about six to seven acres area uh, with very narrow exits uh, and some of them closed. A British force under Brigadier General Dyer uh, rolled in with 50 soldiers, 50 rifles, and 40 others, uh, and without warning, Uh, shot this protest meeting, shot into this protest meeting uh, at the most conservative uh, estimate, about five to six hundred people uh, were killed and uh, about double or triple that number were left wounded without medical assistance. Now this massacre uh, became uh, became a sort of iconic massacre, if there's a thing like that, in in modern Indian history, which probably uh, uh, goes up somewhere along with the ranks of the Soweto riots or or the suppression of the Mau Mau or the Wounded Knee Massacre, uh, in terms of what a deep impact it has left on the Indian psyche. And it also, it is believed, and that is something which we are going to debate, that it turned around the direction of India's freedom movement. It caused a considerable debate in the United Kingdom itself. Uh, and ultimately, 20 years, 21 years after the massacre, the lieutenant governor of the province, who was also called Odwyer, not Dyer, was assassinated by a man called Udham Singh. Now here with me, I have two wonderful uh, writers uh, on my right, uh, Anita Anand, who has written now uh, a fabulous book on on Udham Singh, who was a patient assassin, and the title of this of the session, and Dr. Kim Wagner, who's done an extremely detailed and admirable micro history of those critical days of 1919. So I'm going to start uh, by asking them, and Kim, may I start with you? Uh, so much has been written about Jallianwala Bagh. Uh, why did you have to write this book? Is it simply to catch the centenary flavor? Or? I saw all my, um, my colleagues, uh, you know, banking in on, on the First World War centenary. And, uh, no, um, I've worked previously on uh, 1857 and uh, always had it sort of in the back of my mind, always lurking in the back, the Amritsar massacre has sort of 
been a point of reference in terms of colonial violence. Um, and it's usually seen exclusively as a 20th century event, something that, that follows on from the First World War uh, and that, that points towards independence in 47. Uh, but coming at it from the 19th century, uh, I, I thought there was a lot of um, continuities and a lot of things, especially when I was working on the violent suppression of the uprising of 1857, when Indian rebels were blown from cannon and you have mass killings. A lot of the things that were being said at that time resonated with what uh, Dyer later said in 1919. And so I thought this was almost like a, a natural progression uh, in that sense. Actually, in your introduction, you say this event is, quote-unquote, poorly understood uh, in India, and you're going to explain it uh, to us. Uh, uh, I mean, you have to explain that, because there are dozens of scholars who've, who've studied this in, in India, and they... I mean, Indians feel we understand it very well. But... Um, I think that the problem for me is that Amritsa is exclusively seen uh, as a catalyst for independence and exclusively as something that's of importance because of 1947. And I think that sort of overdetermines how the events of 1919 are understood because nobody in 1919 knew that independence was coming. Um, and so you have this sort of thick layer of, 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 of nationalist narrative that in many ways uh, overdetermines how uh, the massacre is, is described. The victims are described as martyrs, just talk about heroism, and of course the British become villains. I think in a lot of the literature, a lot of the uh, fictional depictions, I'm of course referring to Attenborough's Gandhi movie here, um, it's really a sort of two-dimensional cartoon character uh, in terms of the British. Um, and it's, it seems almost natural or self-evident to describe Dyer as evil. Uh, and, and I thought we, we need more complexity uh, if we want to understand that. I'm going to come back to that point of giving complexity to Dyer and the dangers therein. But heroism, you mentioned, and one of the heroes of Jallianwala Bagh is Udham Singh. So your uh, motivation for writing this book? So, so first of all, th those of you who don't know about Udham Singh, um, you, you painted the picture of what happened that day in the garden. But the, the legend that Punjabi certainly know is that there was a young teenager in the garden who was an orphan, and he was serving water in the garden when the guns start firing. And like so many hundreds of other people, he's trapped in the garden by Dyer's curfew. And he is there in the garden, and he hears the screaming turning to whimpering, turning to silence and it drives him mad. And in the first light of morning, he grabs a, a clod of earth soaked in blood, and he says, no matter how long it takes, no matter where it takes me, I'm going to find the men who did this and kill them with as little mercy as they have shown my countrymen. That is a story that if you are a Punjabi, you know, and it's in your kind of DNA. I have an added reason that this is a story that I've grown up with because my grandfather was in the garden that day. So my grandfather was a, a, a young man. He'd come from Kalabagh, which is near the mountains, uh, sort of near Peshawar. He was not any kind of political creature. He, I mean, I would love to say, it would be lovely for me to say he was a Krantikari, a freedom fighter. I mean, he was a kid who'd come to do a sewing machine deal with a scrap metal dealer uh, who was in a market very near the garden. And what happened to him was that he left the garden minutes before the firing started. So again, you know, it would, it would suit me and my own lionization of myself to say he was there and he dodged the bullets. He didn't. It was almost worse for him because he was with two friends. 
he tells them, uh, just, you know, keep my food and I'll be back. I've just got to go and do this thing, I'll be back. And he goes to the market and when he's in the market, he hears the wailing sweeping through the market because this is what has happened. And he rushes back, but when he rushes back, he can't get to the garden. And so he has to wait till morning, like so many Amritsaris did, to find out what happened to the people that he cared about, and they were dead. So he lived with survivor's guilt for the rest of his life and uh, in many ways was defined by it. So this was a story that I was too close to, and I always resisted writing it. I didn't want to write this because I thought I'm a journalist. I work for the BBC. I thought I don't have the distance to write it. But then I married my husband, who you know, um, who is a, a How science writer. How odd that you should marry your husband. I very odd that I married your husband. <laughs> it would have been odder if I'd married your husband. No, but it's... <laughs> uh, but what happened was that while we were, you know, sort of a, a couple of years into our marriage, I was telling him this story of, of um, my grandfather. He said, that's really weird. Do you know about Udham Singh? I said, yeah, I'm Punjabi. <laughs> and he said, well, my, um, my grandfather's um, friends and my un- great-uncles lived with Udham Singh in London. So it just suddenly became this sort of itch that you can't stop scratching. And, um, and I, I, it took me this long to get my head into the space where I could write something about the massacre, my grandfather's experience, and then this creature, Udham Singh, who is a legend in India. If you go to the Jallianwala Bagh now, they've just put a statue up of him with his hand stretched out like this with his palm full of supposedly blood-soaked earth. And, you know, like, um, like Kim in many ways, you know, that is, that is almost a, it's a two-dimensional, even though it's a statue, representation of a story that has a lot more complexity. And I love a story with complexity. Um, and so that's how I got pulled into it. So this, this shows you something about the impact on Punjab that we actually have within 10 feet two people whose grandfathers were there. We have Navdeep Suri here, whose grandfather, who learned, turned out to be the later, the great Punjabi novelist Nanak Singh, was with there with two friends, and he survived while his two friends mm-hmm. died. And Navdeep will probably tell us this story tomorrow mm-hmm. in his session. And you have Anita's mm-hmm. uh, grandfather who escaped. But talking of Punjab, and Kim, feel free to come in wherever you feel like, what was happening in Punjab at that time? Because... Uh, a lot of other things were happening. Jallianwala Bagh was not an isolated incident. Would either of you want to talk about that? Well, do, do you want to start off? Because you, you, I mean, you paint the picture beautifully, and I, I focus much more on sort of individuals' experiences in that time. So is, is that all right? So this is, uh, of course, after the end of the First World War, you had 1.4 million soldiers. Soldiers. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, uh, and, and workers, uh, huge resources uh, and uh, financial contributions from India to uh, the British war effort. Uh, Gandhi is recruiting for the British Army right up to 1918. People return from the war expecting some kind of reward in, in terms of increased um, self-governance and reforms. And the British at the time, uh, and this is where it gets complicated, they both reward the Indians, loyal Indians, mind uh, with the, the, the so-called uh, Montague Thamesford reforms, which are unprecedented. But they also pair that with uh, repression in, in the format of uh, the Rowlett Acts, which is essentially co- uh, continue the wartime emergency measures. So you have the carrot and stick being used at the same time, which means that there's really a, sort of an acute sense of uncertainty and dislocation politically. And this is combined with uh, the, the flu pandemic, which kills 12 million Indians, 
as uh, failure of harvest, as high food prices, the entire trade in Amritsa, which is a, you know, an important trade entrepot, has been disrupted by the war as well. Uh, so it, it's, it is sort of a perfect storm of both uh, socioeconomic disruption but also political turmoil. And you, and you have a man in charge in, in the form of um, Michael O'Dwyer, who also says, I mean, just a fascinating character. So Michael O'Dwyer, who is the Lieutenant Governor of Punjab, is an Irishman. He's not just an Irishman, he's an Irish Catholic. Not just an Irish Catholic, an Irish Catholic from Tipperary. So, you know, the people he has grown up with have been nationalists. They have been people who have demanded freedom. But Michael O'Dwyer's family is very, very different. They are loyal to Westminster. Michael O'Dwyer's father, who is the man he worships above everybody else... He says he's a man's man, a paragon of all virtue. Um, his father believes that Westminster's might is right and that these Irish nationalists, or Fenians, are, they represent chaos, they represent madness, and they, rep they, they are to be repudiated. And what happens is that Michael always worries for his father because he stands out amongst the Catholics. He just worries that someday somebody is going to shoot him. There are some very high-profile political assassinations that take place by the nascent IRA, as, as we would call them now. And he thinks that this is, this is a matter of time. He lives with this anxiety. And sure enough, when he's studying in London, uh, there are these Irish nationalists who fire into the O'Dwyer house. And though they don't kill him, his sister and his father are in the house. And he has this enormous sense of loathing, particularly when the stress he believes directly as a result of these nationalists causes his father to have a terrible stroke from which he never recovers. So, you, I mean, the, the, the causality of these things, you've got all of this turmoil, you have a man sitting in the governor's house in Lahore who believes all nationalists bring about chaos. So any, I mean, nationalists are bad enough, but these upstart Indian Brahmins in particular, he classifies Indians like a botanist classifying poisonous subspecies. <laughs> but the upstart Indian nationalist, the worst of all. And so he is there, he's using the rowel attack like a heavy hammer, and so the scene is set, and he's paranoid that these nationalists are gaining too much strength and momentum. So it's just a perfect storm, really, uh, uh, which leads to this. But at the same time, uh, while all this is happening... Uh the British government is actually trying to move very, very nascent uh, reforms towards self-government. Uh, uh, and Michael O'Dwyer is coming out, as you mentioned, very strongly uh, against this. Mm. There is another thing happening at the same time is the return of the Gadar revolutionaries born in the west coast of America three years earlier. And they, they return and their conspiracy in 1915 is actually betrayed. And Michael O'Dwyer comes down very hard on it. Yet, and this is a question which I'm going to ask you to respond to, one, the justification given for the shooting at uh, Jallianwala Bagh later was that if we had not, if Dyer had not acted as he did, uh, this massive conspiracy, this rebellion that was brewing in Punjab, which had links with the Bolsheviks, with the Germans, and with everybody else who could be naughty, uh, would have taken over Punjab. And now, clearly, there was no, as it was later discovered, there was no such rebellion or conspiracy. So was it an ex post facto justification, or they really feared that? And this is your point of colonial panic, which you talk of in the book. Was this colonial panic at the level of the highest authorities, or is this colonial panic of colonial wives who were worried that they would become 
victims of brutal rape and murder like had happened in 1857? Uh, I'd say it's very much both. Uh, I think if we look at something like uh, E.M. Foster's Passage to India, we see echoes of it in Orwell's Burmese days. There's a deep-seated colonial mindset, which is about uh, a sense of vulnerability, even at the point of absolute colonial control. After 1857, British rule in India is, is quite firm and secure, and yet the British, they never get over this fear and suspicion that the Indian soldiers, for instance, on, on whom their authority ultimately rests, might turn against them. Uh, and from a British perspective, as, as Anita indicates, there's no such thing as uh, a peaceful Indian crowd. There's no such thing as a legitimate grievances, because obviously British rule is good and the best. So if you are opposing British rule, um, you must have been put up to it, because you don't have any actual grievances. And so it's Western-educated nationalists, so-called agitators and seditionists, who are believed to be stirring up trouble. And that's why uh, it is really a, a conspiratorial sort of mindset that the British are operating on. And, and I mean, you've heard, you've heard the expression of, uh, you know, a virtuous circle. This is an unvirtuous circle. So the more that the British crack down on these young men, you know, the more that they fear these soldiers who have come back and regard them as these uh, mutineers, would-be mutineers, the more they create them. So you have people who are not necessarily radicalised, who come back from the war, who find that they've got the Rowl attack pounding their loved ones, making their lives much more difficult, taxations which are punitive when they're expecting reward. And so this radicalisation begins. And in Udham Singh's case, you know, there is a, a young man... It, it, you know what? This is not a new story. It's a news story, and it's a story that we read even now, which is the radicalisation of a dispossessed young man who feels he has nothing, feels he has little recourse, feels he has no hope, and then gets herded in to this world of violent retribution. And even somebody who is born with so little, and I always, I sort of say this, Udham Singh was a man who had less than nothing. You know, he was, he was low caste, and it's important to say that he was low caste, because it means that among Indians who had so little, he had even less. He was an orphan. He had no parents to love him. The only person he had ever loved dies in the orphanage in which he's brought up. Amritsar is his parent, actually. And this is why the attack on Amritsar, I believe, attacked him so very deeply. He's raised in an orphanage not very far from Jalilabad. And he is a man who fought with the British, had a very undistinguished career in, in fighting with the British Army in Basra, comes back and can't afford to feed himself and can't afford to put clothes on his back. This is something, a template, a radicalisation that is true, as true today as it was back then. And then what is unusual is that this is a, a man who spends 20 years trying to change himself into the avenging angel. Like, you know, if, you, if any of you have read Tom Ripley, you know, he is a man who will go and find whoever can teach him how to be this killer and learn from any one of them. If you hate the British, then you are my teacher. Why don't you say a few words about the character that evolved? He was a completely unreliable sort of man who would say one thing to one person. Another. Was it all deliberate? Was it all... Was he a lone wolf? Was he a yeah. lunatic? Was, yeah. what? No, because that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what's yeah. been said. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's... So the, the narrative that has existed for... I mean, for always, pretty much, and, and was that he was somehow a lone wolf, a Walter Mitty-type character who made up things and was a fantasist and got lucky. 
you know, that he just happened into this meeting at Caxton Hall. I mean, I should say this assassination that took place after 20 years takes place in Westminster in the heart of London. So, and there's a very macabre symmetry about this because the place, Caxton Hall, where it happens, is almost the same distance from the Houses of Parliament as Jallianwala Bagh is from the Golden Temple. So this kind of sacrilege is a mirror image of sacrilege that takes place. And that idea that he was some lucky loony was propagated by the British. Mm. And what I've done in the book is that, you know, the, the British are brilliant at the dark arts, but they're also fabulously good at bureaucracy. So, you know, they do the paperwork. So you just need to find that slipstream of paperwork and you will find how they discuss how they are going to separate him from any political motive how they are going to paint him as a nutcase, how they're going to lean on the press. And there is a, you know, I'm a member of the press. It is disgraceful how the media at the time roll over and do what the British say, Reuters in particular, horribly complicit in, in, in separating truth from reality. And they are the ones who create this image. Because, and you've got to understand why they would do that. There are two wars that are important here. So there is the war, the First World War, after which you have Jallianwala Bagh. And you have the Second World War, which is exactly when Udham Singh takes his revenge in 1940. Why do the British want to separate him from any kind of political motive? Because they're sending Punjab's boys to die again in a foreign war. So the last thing they want is some, you know, political upheaval to show the people of Britain that they are vulnerable and to show the people of India that Jallianwala Bagh is still a memory that exists and lives. So that is why they go into overdrive to separate them. And, and I was very fortunate. I mean, I you know, came across lots of wonderful documents that, that uh, I mean, not one smoking gun, but so many smoking guns in this. But, but in both cases that you mentioned, uh, the media is silenced. Mm. Jallianwala Bagh, for about six months, nothing reliable came. For about two months, even London didn't have a full picture of what, what had happened there. The same thing happened with uh, Udham Singh, but yet the news leaked out. In Udham Singh's case, in fact, this, as you call him, this low-caste, often underprivileged Indian suddenly became the subject of uh, Goebbels. Mm. And he used the shooting. Mm. Uh, you want to talk about that? Well, the Nazis leapt on it because, you know, they, for them... It was, it, was, it was manna from heaven because the British, you know, they felt themselves to be the heroes of World War II. The Germans wanted to remind their people that they were fighting on the right side. So when Udham Singh did what he did, there was like an hour lag between the Germans. Goebbels rewrites the news bulletin to say, look, this is the avenger of Jallianwalabagh, these brutish Brits, what they did in India, finally they're getting their comeuppance. To tell the German people, you're, you're fighting on the right side. You're fighting against these barbarians who do these terrible things. I think the German broadcaster is the first, not even an Indian broadcaster, the German broadcaster from Berlin is the first to call him a freedom fighter. Yeah. A fighter for freedom. So, you know, you have that. And you, you were asking about the personality of Udham Singh. It's extraordinary. This person who comes from so little becomes such a quick study of how to travel on false documents, how to infiltrate groups that can help him, how to meet people that matter, how to make everybody trust him as if he, they are the only person in his life. And as he was a result, a he was such a charmer. You know, he, he, people were devoted to him and he used them and discarded them. Even when he has the chance to be happy, you know, he has this period of time in America 
where he falls, one would assume, in love with a, with a Mexican woman called Lupe, and according to one, you know, uh, a confession of his, has two children by that woman, and then discards them all, because this vow of revenge keeps pulling him back, pulling him back. Yeah, so I think if I go back, uh, Kim, to what we mentioned in passing, you meant, I wanted to have a word about Mahatma Gandhi's change of stance after Jallianwala Bagh. You mentioned him as the chief recruiter for the British Army. He did say that I, if I recruit for you, I will rein men uh, for, on, on your army. Uh, and then he, Jallianwala Bagh changed him completely. At the same time, Udham Singh's act was criticized by Mahatma Gandhi straight away as an act of insanity. And then later, after independence, Pandit Nehru changed the stance and Udham Singh became a hero. Uh, in both cases, dramatic changes. Well, I mean, Gandhi is not yet Mahatma in 1919. This is the first moment where he really comes to, to the fore uh, and, and starts his, his sort of mass mobilization. Um, to be quite frank, I don't think Gandhi knows what he's really doing in 1919. Mm. A week before the Amritsar massacre, he tells uh, his followers that as long as you purify yourself, as long as you fast, British airplanes, bullets, and machine guns can't touch us. That's a week before Jalanwala Bagh. And afterwards, uh, of course, he, he calls it a Himalayan blunder, uh, as we all know. But it takes him a very long time to actually lose faith in the British. So Rabindranath Tagore, he returns his knighthood uh, a month and a half after the massacre in May, in late May. Gandhi, he waits until January 1920 when he sees the outcome of the Hunter Committee before Gandhi returns his wartime medals. Uh, he has you know, much more patience. But he launched his own inquiry. Yeah, he, he's part of the, the Independent International Congress uh, Party inquiry alongside. But it's not, real, it's not till August 1920 that the, the, the non-cooperation movement is launched. Yeah. And, and we can really talk about it at break. So it's not like the Amritsar massacre, mm -hmm. sort of like a, you know, a bulb going on. It's, it's a prolonged uh, progress of, of increasing sort of dissolution. Yeah. And I mean, in 1940, you have to understand the motivations of, of, of all of these people at the time they do these things. So when, when Gandhi is calling Udham Singh a lunatic, he is doing so because he is struggling to fight this narrative that Michael O'Dwyer, the, the murder victim, has been pushing all the way along. It's always been Michael O'Dwyer's contention that the Indians are savages, they kill each other, they don't know how to rule themselves, they cannot be left to themselves, they are an inferior race, we have to look after them. Paternalism in the extreme, paternalism plus the die-hard uh, philosophy he signs up to means that he thinks they are too primitive to govern. And so Gandhi and Nehru are trying very, very hard to push a second stream argument, which is we are not those people, we are not like that. So when Udham Singh does this thing, strikes at the very heart of London, they immediately say, that's not us. That is not what we do. We don't shoot old men. We're not like that. And so Udham Singh falls just hideously and tragically through the cracks. And when he falls between the cracks, he's hanged and buried in Pentonville prison here. And uh, in full disclosure, I must say that 
I was researching Gudam Singh with uh, Anita for my own uh, purposes, and she offered to take me to Pentonville Prison years ago like a really to, good day. to see to, <laughs> to see the place where he was hanged and buried. Yeah. And when we reached the prison and we were met by the uh, by the office there, they said, "Yes, uh, you can go in." I mean, they told allowed me to go in and told us you can't because she's a dangerous journalist. So, so, <laughs> so can I just can I just get? This is, I am, I think, the only person who's ever broken into prison. Um, so what happened was I'd been working on this permission for over a year to get into Pentonville, and I'd been working through an ex-governor of Pentonville, and I'd sorted it all out, and I, I, I thought it would be wonderful in the third to see it as well, because, you know, uh, I think it's wonderful to share these insights when you can with whoever's working on it. So I celebrate all and everybody who does research in the field. And we got there, and quite right, they said, well, he can come in and you can't. So I went a little bit ballisto. Yes. <laughs> she, and I, she turned Punjabi. I did a little bit. <laughs> I think at one point I did actually say, get me the Home Secretary on the phone. <laughs> Because you will really, really regret this. And, and then I don't know what happened. But we were, we were kept and fed tea and uh, biscuits for about an hour and then we were allowed in. But then so we saw it. And then, ultimately, yeah. uh, Udham Singh's remains were taken back to India, 1974, and he was given a proper cremation mm. 40 years, uh, 44 years. I mean, it was, it was like a state funeral, actually. Yeah. It was, I mean, everywhere, Indira Gandhi, Nehru's daughter, Nehru, who had repudiated him at the time of the assassination, sits with his coffin, welcomes his coffin to Kapoorthala House. When it touches down at the airport in Delhi, there are people lining the streets, crying in the rain. You know, this is a very heavy monsoon, but they've been waiting for hours. An American journalist working for the Washington Post says, you know, he, he follows the cortege everywhere it goes. The streets are lined with weeping people because our boy has come home. And then, as you say, you know, he, the two future presidents, uh, Gyani Zail Singh and Shankar Dayal Sharma, are involved are with at, the airport, after, at the airport to receive him, and one sits by his pyre as it burns. But you don't answer the question in your book. Would you like to answer today? Mm. Was Udham Singh at the massacre or not? Well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't like to say things I don't know. And the truth is only Udham Singh knows this. I don't find any documentary evidence that definitively puts him there. What I can say is that all of the uh, things that were written that he definitely was not there, they, are, they spring from British propaganda that tried to separate him. And the strongest, they can, the strongest thing they can say at the time in 1940... And remember, this is a time when they have access to all records, all military records, and uh, Udham Singh, as you know, served in the military. The story then came out of another book by another man uh, that he was serving overseas at the time of the massacre, so he couldn't have been there. It's based on a misconception or so falsehood. we finally don't know that he was there we, or not. Well, I think, I think the most banal explanation is often the right one. So uh, while I was researching, I spent a lot of time in Sunam, which was his hometown. And this was something that people would only talk to me, but as long as I didn't identify who they were, because he's such a son of Sanaa, that he was in a neighboring village in the Manja area, and that he was distributing leaflets, because he was trying to become somebody. When he came back from the war, was this disillusioned. He was trying to prove himself to the nationalists, but they treated him like a grunt, you know, just like a, a lowly nobody. So he was doing leafleting for them, and he sent a lot of people to the garden that day. So, in a way, you know, my, my grandfather was destroyed by survivor's guilt. In a way, he was unmade and made by survivor's guilt again because he sent people there but wasn't 
necessarily there. But you know, I've left it. I've left those avenues all open, so you decide for yourself. Because until I know something for sure, I won't tell you. And there's also the legend that his great hero, Bhagat Singh, the other revolutionary, also went to Jallianwala Bagh and and uh, took a vow on the on the soil of Jallianwala Bagh. But I think somewhere in your book, you also doubt that. Well, I, I just say, you know, it's a tw he was 12 years old at the time. So the thought of a 12-year-old going from Lahore to Amritsar uh, to do that pilgrimage um, is, is, is rather extraordinary. But I also say this is an ex extraordinary young man who came from really um, fiery revolutionary stock. His father and his uncle had been in prison from the time he was born in and out of prison, agitating against the British. So, you know, uh, I, I will tell you what people say and I will tell you what we know and then leave it to you to make up your mind because I think that's where the yeah. truth lies. So that's what happened in India, but in the UK, Dyer came back. He was knocked out of service and brought back and there was a huge debate. And then, then you say it was a complex story because here the debate of his complexity took place. There were a lot of people who defended him. Uh, well, one of the things that's come out of the um, centenary uh, of April this year is, is the whole idea that uh, he was already punished by the government at the time, that even Churchill uh, disavowed and criticized his actions, uh, which is um, a, a bit of a simplification because there was widespread support for Dyer. And as, as most of you would probably know, there was a, a, fund. a public fund by the Morning Post uh, which collected money from local people, but throughout the empire. Yeah. Um, but Dyer really um, became singled out. That's one of the reasons why we talk so much about him, because he's the only one who is, in a sense, put on, put on the spot and who is forced to uh, resign from the army, while there was, in fact, uh, a whole lot of o other officers who uh, deployed airplanes to bomb um, and, and machine gun rioters who carried out these sort of fancy punishments elsewhere in Punjab. But Dyer's own admissions during the Hunter Commission made it impossible to defend his actions. And so even, even Churchill, who was certainly, you know, was not an anti-imperialist by any stretch of the imagination, had to disavow his actions. But that was in order to recuperate the moral high ground of the empire. It was not because the logic behind Dyer's actions was perceived as wrong. So the, the, the need for exemplary force and violence never went away. It's only that the problem was that Dyer had too openly and too explicitly yeah. admitted. admitted. So it ultimately it became that he's, he's a bad egg. Yeah. It's an exception, and the rest of the imperial ex enterprise is good. But, but even the bad egg thing was so reluctantly done. I mean, it was... It was uh, so, so somebody got in touch with me who, whose uh, forebear was on the Hunter Commission and found sort of letters saying, you know, that they had done so, they had repudiated Dyer regretfully because he had given them no choice. So they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to deprive this man of his army career, but they felt he had given them no choice. So. Was, was he Udham Singh's initial target? And if he hadn't died on his own? I, he was one of... So right, so right from the start, Udham Singh, according to people who knew him back then, wanted to kill both men. Dyer and O'Dwyer, and took these... You see, there's this thing that nobody knows the difference. Today, we do, we, we amalgamate these two people into one sort of uh, composite devil. You know, the, the O'Dwyer-Dyer name is not helpful in that. So, you know, I've heard people even now in India say, you know, if you do Google searches, you'll have Michael Dyer and Brigadier General O'Dwyer. You know, it is, it is a really confusing thing. At the time, people knew exactly who 
they were talking about. And if you look in Udham Singh's diaries and the letters and the, the notes that were found in his, his room when the police raided, it is very, very clear he knows who he is going for and he knows how he's going to do it. It's utterly premeditated and it is a man who's not mistaking his targets one little bit. Before we move on to the questions, I think we have some time for that. I just want to provoke you a little bit on 100 years later, how do we remember this history? Because I tell you, I felt very hurt when I visited the Bagh recently because I think it's too happy a place today. It's got hedges, it's got children playing, it's got people taking selfies, it's got flowers. It doesn't give you an idea and a feeling of austerity or sobriety or tragedy uh, and doesn't evoke uh, uh, the kind of horror that, say, a visit to the Auschwitz uh, concentration camp uh, evokes. Uh, so it's too happy a place. The statue that you spoke about, Udham Singh standing uh, outside the Bagh, has no resemblance whatsoever to, to Udham Singh. Mm. There's even a wrong photograph of Udham Singh in the museum. It's the other Udham Singh who was a Gadar revolutionary and not this Udham Singh. Mm. Uh, so why... I mean... Uh, and you, you mentioned that there are two urns of uh, Udham Singh's ashes which are still lying in Sunam, waiting, waiting for, for a, a memorial, memorial for the last 50 years. Yeah. yeah, that is true. That is true. So is... I have mixed feelings about the garden. I mean, I know what you mean. Uh, when you say the, the hedges, I think we ought to uh, expose the hedges in their full horror. They, they've cut topiary soldiers who are, like, holding guns. But the thing is, it's India, so these things wilt. So they're all shooting their feet. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, I mean, it's just awful. That's awful. But, you know, the fact that people were having picnics... I took my two very small boys there uh, last year. And the fact that they were laughing and playing and, and eating a picnic, to me, was quite fitting because that's what my grandfather was doing. And that's what they were all doing. And it was a reminder that this was not some seething cauldron of political discontent. It was a place where people were just getting out of the Vesaki, you know, hectic Amritsar. And they were doing what he, they, they are doing. Um, how did I mark the anniversary? Um, well, very oddly, actually. Uh, I, I, uh, so Kim very kindly passed me a number for um, Rex Dyer's granddaughter. I said, do you want to talk to her? And I said, actually, I really don't want to talk to her uh, until I finish the book, because I, if I like her, it's going to change the way I write about this, and if I don't like her, it's going to change how I, I do this. So I only rang her after I'd finished the book and handed it in. And I rang her up, and I said, oh, hello, um, my name's Anita Arnand. And she said, oh, I know you from the radio. I said, that's not why I'm ringing. Um, your great-grandfather tried to kill my grandfather. Do you want a cup of tea? <laughs> And she said, yes, I would very much like that. And she came to the house, and we sat together for two hours. And I was really nervous about this meeting, during which time she expressed not one ounce of regret over what he had done. She still thinks he did the right thing and the only thing that was open to him. Um, at, at one point, I mean, I've, I've written about this in the papers, um, she said, I, I went out because I just, I don't know what... I just wanted to be the best me to show that, you know, we are not savages. Look at us. I know it's a sort of a throwback feeling. But I got really expensive chocolate brownies. And I sort of offered her one. She goes, have you poisoned them? <laughs> and I said, are you sure? Do you really think that? Are you worried about that? And she said, well, I said, would it help if I ate half? 
And I did have to leave. So come on. But the upshot is I, I asked her if she wants to come to Amritsar with me. And I will show her what the garden she's not been. And I want to show her the bark and I want to show her the garden. And I want to, I mean, she said at one point, do you want me to apologise? I'm not going to. And I said, I thought at that time, I thought, actually, I don't care about an apology. I mean, my, my grandfather, it doesn't matter to him and it doesn't matter to his friends, they're dead. Um, but what I really want is for you to understand, just to see the truth. And that really is all I care about. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform, in association with Teamwork Arts, the producers of the Jepper Literature Festival. If you haven't already, do subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Ah.